Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 361. A Lutheran pastor explains Socinianism and Biblical Unitarianism. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to interact with a short video that somebody pointed out to me on Facebook. In this video, a Lutheran pastor from Texas answers a listener question about Unitarian Christianity. I think in some ways, the pastor does about as well as an educated Trinitarian pastor these days will do, and yet there's still a lot of room for improvement in the accuracy of his answers. So this episode is kind of a frequently asked questions about Unitarian Christianity, which will also correct some common misunderstandings about it, and will also engage a little bit with his brief arguments against Unitarian views. So in a way, it's kind of also a dialogue with him. So here then is how Pastor Sullivan starts off his video. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of ATP, Ask the Pastor. I'm Pastor Joshua Sullivan at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in beautiful, sunny Kerrville, Texas. Today's question, dear Pastor, I'm an undecided Christian looking into Lutheranism and other more traditional forms of Christianity coming from non-denominationalism, and your channel's been a huge blessing for me, and I've learned a lot of things from it. Thank you, and glory be to God. I wanted to ask you to discuss Sassinianism and the so-called biblical Unitarian movement, uh, as promoted by people like Anthony Buzzard, Dale Tuggy, and Sean Finnegan, and why it is not a biblical understanding of God. All right, so Sinianism is named for Laelius Sassinus and his nephew, Faustus Sassinus. So Sinianism is simply anti-Trinitarianism. And that's the first mistake there. Today's Unitarian Christianity is not defined purely in terms of what it's against. You can be a grumpy contrarian and not actually have any developed theological views of your own. You just might think that Trinity is a bunch of bull. You might just be down on theology in general. You might just like to push people's buttons. The pejorative term anti-Trinitarian suggests just a negative contrarian of that sort. Well, that's not what most of us are, especially if you consider the more educated among us. What it is, more accurately, is a more thoroughgoing or more extreme form of Protestantism, which rolls back not only the papacy, monks and nuns, the seven sacraments, and so on, but also says that, you know, these Trinity and Incarnation speculations are actually not taught in Scripture, and we think Christianity is better done without them. That's what's really fundamental to today's Unitarian Christians. So even though he starts off on a bad foot, characterizing us as mere anti-Trinitarians, he does do better later. So let's keep going. The biblical Unitarian movement is simply Socinianism with a few slight modifications here and there. Not really. So Socinianism is what was referred to as the minor reformed church in Poland. This was mainly in the 15-1600s, and this was a thriving Unitarian Christian Protestant movement It's part of what historians now characterize as the Radical Reformation. Unfortunately, this was scattered to the four winds by an evil Catholic king at a certain point. 
So strictly, there aren't any Socinians around today. There aren't any disciples of Socinus or people who accept the distinctive Socinian theology as expressed in the famous Rakovian Catechism, which you can still get a translation of today, by the way. I recommend it. It's a good read. I'll put a link for it on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. So to view it as revived Socinianism is just a historical mistake. First of all, there were lots of Unitarians in Britain and America in between the time of Socinus and now. And second of all, people just don't read Socinus and the Socinians much now. A lot of their material is still untranslated in Latin. And if you talk to your average Unitarian Christian who was raised Trinitarian, such as me, and we tell you why we changed views, yeah, Socinus really doesn't come into it at all. So the word Socinian today has become kind of a lazy shorthand for referring to the type of Unitarian Christian who doesn't believe that Jesus existed before his miraculous conception. Sometimes people will call those of us who hold to that Socinians as contrasted with, quote, Arians, where the, quote, Arians believe that Jesus did exist in some non-human form before his miraculous conception. Arian is an even worse term, right? It was a pejorative term made up by the pro-Nicene Council side in the middle of a bitter controversy in the 300s. The so-called Arians didn't call themselves that. They weren't really followers of Arius. That was just a way to tar them with the name of somebody who had been rejected at the 325 Council. So I don't go around calling people Socinians and Arians at all, because there really aren't any of those nowadays. But again, other people use these as shorthand for referring to Unitarians who think that Jesus did exist before his human career. Those are the, quote, Arians. And then those of us who think that's not what Scripture teaches, we are, quote, Socinians. Yeah, but not really. Socinians, they hold to the absolute authority of Holy Scripture while claiming that man's natural reason is sufficient for understanding and interpreting the Scripture. So that's what makes them different uh, in a fundamental way from Unitarian Universalists. Well, he's right about that last part. Unitarian Universalism is a recently founded non-Christian religion, whereas in contrast, Unitarian Christians are Christians, at least in a sociological sense. I know it's traditional to small-c Catholic views to exclude us, but yeah, in our mind and sociologically, we're Christians. If you want to say we're not real Christians, that's something we can argue about. But what makes us distinct from other Christians is not anything methodological. A Unitarian Christian can have any range of different views about the power and sufficiency of human reason. There is no one simple methodological position which we all share and which explains why we reject Trinitarian speculations in favor of simpler Unitarian theology and Christology. What Pastor Sullivan says here is a polite version of the old canard that we are, quote, rationalists, which means something like proud people who think too highly of their own intelligence and who refuse to believe anything they can't completely understand or which they can't completely explain. This is just a polemical mischaracterization of Unitarian Christians that goes back to the early modern era. It's probably something Pastor Sullivan would have learned in seminary. To his credit, he's trying to be charitable, and so he also correctly points out that our aim and intention is to base our views on Scripture, rightly understood. Which, yeah, puts us in a completely different realm than Unitarian Universalists who don't think the Bible is authoritative in any sense. Now, Socinians, being Unitarian, believe that God is not only one in essence, but that he's also one in person. So God the Father, he alone is God. 
Mm-hmm. They'll often point to the words in John 17, 3, the words of Jesus. Yep. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Preach it. There, Jesus calls the Father the only true God. Sosinus himself also pointed to 1 Corinthians 8, 6. For us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. And he also used Ephesians 4, 6, one God and Father of all. So the, the whole point of Socinianism, past or present, is that the Father alone is God. Yes, that is entirely accurate. That is the whole point, really. I would want to correct a possible misunderstanding, though. Our views are not based on controversial interpretations of three or four passages. Our views are based on considering the entire New Testament and trying to use the clearer passages to help us understand the more obscure passages. So it goes way beyond those texts that he quoted, although, yes, those are some of our favorites, because they just seem to clearly and explicitly state our view. And that's the difference, we think, between our theology and Christology and the traditional small-c Catholic speculations. The view that the Father alone is God is just simply stated straight up. The view that Jesus is a man, a very special man, is, again, explicitly stated multiple times and constantly portrayed to boot. In contrast, any Trinity theory is only inferred by dodgy arguments. And the same goes for speculations according to which Jesus has two natures, human and divine. Further, these speculations seem to contradict clear New Testament teachings, since if the one God just is the Father alone, then it must be false that the one God just is the Trinity, right? Because the Trinity isn't the Father alone. Just so, with Christology, the mainstream view is that Jesus is, quote, man, but not a man, that is to say, the eternal divine Son, because he's entered into a mysterious union with a, quote, complete human nature, a rational soul and body which don't compose a man, because of that union, the word man can be applied, in a special and unique sense, to the eternal divine Son. Okay, well, we think the New Testament teaching is that Jesus is a man, full stop. That is to say, a human person. Someone capable of having limited knowledge, of being tempted, of being a servant of and worshiper of God of putting his faith in God, and who's capable of dying in contrast to God. When the Trinity's podcast returns, do Unitarian Christians think that Jesus is divine in any shape or form? According to Socinians past and present, nor does God, the Father, beget a son from eternity who is of the same substance or essence. Mm-hmm. Socinus argued that if God begot a son, then it would be in the same way that men or animals beget offspring. And when men or animals beget offspring, their substance is divided and then multiplied. So if God were to beget a son, then he would be numerically divided, meaning that there would be two gods. 
Rather, they teach that Jesus is the Son of God in that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, given the Holy Spirit without measure, but he is just man. He's not divine in any way, shape, or form. Close but no cigar. That last bit isn't quite right because we call things divine which are closely associated with God. Someone might call the Bible divine or the gospel divine or say that the church is divine. And in a sense like this, Jesus is divine for he is uniquely closely associated with God. He's the son of God. His conception was miraculously caused by God. So yeah, he's divine in some sense, but not in the sense of having a divine essence or nature like Catholic traditions have come to say. Now, about what he said before that, yes, some Unitarians will object to traditional speculations about eternal generation, that there's some philosophical problem with it, that there isn't a coherent concept of reproduction or generating here, or some will say that the notion of eternal causing doesn't make sense, the cause has to come before the effect. I've never put too much stock in those kind of objections myself, but some Unitarian Christians do offer them. That is, some of us think there are conceptual or philosophical problems with traditional speculations about divine processions. But I think the more important point is that Scripture in no way teaches those things. This eternal generation and procession, this eternal causing or sourcing of the Son and Spirit by the Father, is just never mentioned in the Bible anywhere. There are just traditional misreadings in which people lay this later idea back upon biblical texts. And interestingly enough, some modern era Trinitarians agree with us about this. Many agree because historical grammatical interpretation just strips away any text which has been traditionally read to teach eternal generation or eternal procession. Further, some Trinitarians today reject those speculations because they seem to imply that the Father is greater than the other two. If part of divinity is being the ultimate source of all else, and so not existing because of anything else, then if the Father eternally generates the Son, or eternally spirates the Spirit, then only the Father would have that divine quality, and so the Son or Spirit would be lacking in at least one divine quality, which is contrary to the Nicene claim that they are equally divine. Now, there's a late 4th century answer to these problems that some Trinitarians today accept. In my view, this was kind of an extreme overreaction to the speculations of the non-Nicene theologian Eunomius. They would just say, hey, aseity or independent existence just isn't part of divinity at all. It's not implied by divinity. Right? They have to say this if they're going to accept generation and procession and the full divinity of the Son and the Spirit. But this seems contrary to perfect being reasoning about God. And so that's why some modern Trinitarians, such as the famous apologist Dr. William Lane Craig, just say, look, this divine procession stuff is just wrong, and it has no basis in Scripture, and we should get rid of it in order to uphold the full deity of all three of them. Since, come on, this does have to be implied by divinity that one exists independently of anything else. But again, the important point is that Unitarian Christians, generally speaking, you could find a few, I think, that accept these traditional speculations and the traditional misreadings of those passages. But generally, today's Unitarian Christians don't put any stock in speculations about such things because we want to base our theology and our Christology on what's actually taught in Scripture. And these things aren't. He is God the Father's only begotten human Son. 
since the scripture sometimes uses the word gods for beings that aren't the Father, but just simply hold a high As rank. Jesus the chief points instance out. of this uh, would be when Jesus quotes Psalm 82, verse 6, right. you are gods, John in 10. defense of calling himself the Son of God. Mm-hmm. Salson has believed uh, that Jesus taught this throughout the Gospels in places uh, where he called the Father my God, such as in John, 17, uh, John 20, 17, excuse me, when he told Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Well, those seem like solid points, don't they? How can a fully divine person or a person who's God be under God? God, the one true God, is by definition subject to no one else. He's top dog, so to speak, and necessarily so. So when someone comes along and says that the God of the Jews is his God, well, we know he's not God, right? Because God doesn't have a God. We've just put our finger on another place where Scripture seems to heavily favor our views. And we're talking about clear passages here, not difficult to interpret ones. Now, in spite of the fact that Jesus is fully man, according to the Socinians, and has no divine nature whatsoever, Socinus believed that Christ should be worshipped. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus, after all, said in John five twenty three, all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Mm-hmm. And St. Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. He wrote, Christ has this, this right to be worshipped, from God the Father as a man. Mm-hmm. So even though Christ isn't divine, but he's simply a man, he is to be worshipped. He receives divine worship. Right, you can hear the incredulity there in his voice. You know, I think he's assuming, as many Trinitarians do assume, that surely it could never be appropriate to worship anyone unless that someone has the divine nature. So, in other words, worship worthiness requires being fully divine. Is this something taught in Scripture? No, on the face of it, not, because Scripture teaches that Jesus is a man and that now since he's been exalted to God's right hand, he should be worshipped. You see this in Philippians 2 and in Revelation 5. This claim that it's wrong to worship anyone unless they have a divine nature, it's not self-evident, nor is it a clear scriptural teaching. So, it's something that would need to be argued for. And we can't see that there is any good argument for it. In fact, it looks to us like it just is simply uncritically assumed And it's one of those things about traditional small-c Catholic theology that we think needs to be examined and reformed. What does Scripture actually say? Well, the Old Testament says that you should only worship Yahweh, the one true God, and not any of the alleged deities of the surrounding nations. That view is still there in the New Testament. Although, as I said, you see also the portrayal of what looks like the worship of Jesus. So, it looks like we're under a new deal here. Now, to be honest, this is not what all Unitarian Christians think, and this disagreement actually goes back to the time of Socinus. Some Unitarian Christians would say that there is a kind of honor or worship which can only be given to God, and so strictly speaking, only God, that is the Father, should be worshipped, And there's some kind of lower honor or worship which we can give to his exalted son. Now, I myself don't really see this in the New Testament, but I don't have a big problem with it 
because it seems to me that the disagreement is mostly, if not entirely, verbal. If you want to use the word worship like some do, to just by definition mean something appropriate to God alone, then no, of course you shouldn't worship Christ because Christ is not the one true God, the Father is. But if you use worship more broadly, then yeah, it looks like we would worship both of them. There are definitely some things here to argue about in terms of scriptural terminology, but I think it's best just to note this disagreement among Unitarian Christians and leave it at that. Now, regarding the purpose of Christ's death upon the cross, Sawson is taught that we can imitate Christ and that this is the way to eternal salvation and that on this account, Christ is rightly called our Savior. So salvation is by imitation, faith in Christ and imitation for uh, the Socinians. It is true that the Socinians objected to some speculations from the mainstream Reformation that we would nowadays term as penal substitutionary theories of atonement. But it's not true that Sosin has taught that we could earn our salvation by doing good Christ-like deeds. What is true is that the Socinians believed in what's called a moral exemplar or moral example theory of atonement, so that the main or even only purpose of Christ's death on the cross was for this to serve as an example of self-sacrificing obedience to God. Most Christians would agree that that's one way in which his death on the cross is important, but most would not agree that that's the only way, hence all the other atonement theories. But even if they're right about that, it wouldn't follow from that that we can earn our salvation by doing deeds in imitation of Christ. I think maybe our pastor friend is inferring that here. But yeah, as far as I know, repentance, faith, response to God's grace is required, but I don't think the Socinians thought what he just said. And in fact, that's not what today's Unitarian Christians generally think. What do Unitarian Christians think about salvation? Generally speaking, they're just Protestants, so they can hold the whole range of Protestant views. We would say that salvation is by grace whether that's understood in a more Calvinistic sense, or an Arminian sense, or an open theist sense, your mileage is going to differ when you're talking to different Unitarian Christians. And I think nearly all of today's Unitarian Christians would agree that Christ's death is an example for us to follow, and yet they probably wouldn't agree that that's all there is to it, or that we can earn our salvation through Christ's imitating deeds. Now, as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, Sosinus wrote, the Holy Spirit is the power and efficacy of God, for what is attributed to the power and efficacy of God is without a doubt attributed to God himself. But the power and efficacy of God is not therefore some divine person, just as neither the goodness of God, nor his justice, nor mercy, nor judgment, nor other per effects or properties of God are some divine persons. Otherwise, there ought to be many more persons than three. So, the Holy Spirit, just the power of God, not a distinct person of the Godhead. Well, Sosinus makes some good points there, doesn't he? Generally, I have to say I like Sosinus. He seems like a godly and sensible theologian, and I don't always agree with his ideas or his biblical interpretations, but I find him a lot more likable and a lot less embarrassing than, say, for instance, Calvin or Luther. But having said that, today's Unitarian Christians generally don't know or care what Sosinus said about the Holy Spirit in the Bible. It is true that today's Unitarian Christians generally don't think that the Holy Spirit is supposed to be a divine person in addition to the Father. Now, if you look hard today among the so-called Arians, and if you look in the past, 
or people like John Biddle and Samuel Clark in early modern history, you can find Unitarian Christians who believe that the Holy Spirit is some sort of lesser divine being, a spirit, perhaps a created one. That view is out there, and it's consistent with the core claims of Unitarianism, which is that the one God just is the Father alone, and that Jesus is his human Son. You can, you know, tack on speculations and traditional uh, biblical interpretations that the Son existed before his human career, and that the Holy Spirit is a spirit, like a self, which is in some sense divine. However, I would say that most of us don't take those extra steps, and the term biblical Unitarian generally is used to mean those of us who think the one God is the Father, that Jesus is human, that he didn't pre-exist, and that the Spirit of God is just the Spirit of God and not a divine person in addition to God. So, biblical Unitarianism means the same thing today that Socinianism means, and it's really the more descriptive and more accurate term. Although I know it irritates Trinitarians because they want to say, hey, you can't call yourself biblical. I get it. The most neutral and arguably the most accurate term is just Unitarian Christian or Unitarian Christianity. Because again, these people aren't really disciples of Socinus. And I should add that although Unitarian Christian is a more descriptive and accurate term, it's also a little bit broader than this newly coined phrase, Biblical Unitarian. Unitarian Christianity encompasses those folks, but also people who believe in the pre-human existence of Jesus, and even a few who think that the Holy Spirit is a distinct self. What unites them all? Again, that the one God just is the Father and no one else, and that Jesus is a numerically distinct and lesser being, namely a man. When the Trinity's podcast returns, some other things that Socinus denied. Before we play this next bit, I want to just point something out. It's part of traditional polemical rhetoric to characterize non-Catholic Christians as deniers. That terminology suggests that we're just stupidly refusing to accept what is just obviously right there, right? Like a Holocaust denier. Again, our view isn't primarily negative, and nor are we denying anything which is obvious if Catholic views about Trinity and Incarnation were obvious to any Bible reader, you just wouldn't have had the first 700 years of church history play out the way it did. That whole long series of arguments shows that such claims are not, most of them, obvious. Okay, so what else did this dastardly Socinus deny? Socinus denied original sin. He denied Christ's vicarious atonement, obviously. He denied the eternal punishment of the unbelieving, the devil and his angels, and instead taught annihilationism. And many of these views are popular with today's Unitarian Christians, but again, the views vary. There's a big historical piece, I think, missing in the way that Pastor Sullivan is looking at that issue, 
And that piece is 18th and 19th century British and American Unitarianism, really largely independent of Socinian material. These Protestant Christians started to strip back traditional speculations about Trinity and Incarnation in light of Scripture and with a knowledge of church history, which was also growing at the time. About American Unitarianism especially, remember that America was in part founded by Puritans who were Calvinists. And so a lot of early America was Calvinistic in its theology, or as we say nowadays, Reformed with a capital R. And as the 1700s went on and you get into the 1800s, a lot of, in particular, American Unitarians who had already, for biblical reasons, rejected traditional speculations about Trinity and Incarnation, a lot of them came to think they should do the same thing with traditional Calvinistic views, the whole traditional tulip, total depravity, the way that Calvinists understand that, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. So in the 1800s, some American Unitarians, while still being relatively traditional and conservative Christians, would reject all the elements of the Calvinistic tulip. And so do many today. And by the way, we're much more likely to have read English-language American Unitarian literature from the 1800s than we are to have read anything from the early modern Polish brethren, a.k.a. the Socinians. So some of us today still take a very kind of anti-Calvinistic position, but you can find some Unitarian Christians who are somewhat Calvinistic and do accept some of those five elements of the tulip. Now, modern Socinians in the biblical Unitarian movement, they hold too many of Socinus' original opinions. One one difference that I've seen is that they do have a different view of Christ's death. Many biblical Unitarians today uh, teach that he is a fully human sin offering that did, in fact, earn salvation for those who would believe it. Like Christians generally, there is no one view of atonement that is held. You could find some who hold to penal substitution views that are popular in broader evangelicalism today, and you could find people with different views about how quite atonement is supposed to work. The root problem, though, with Socinianism, from which all of its other problems stem, is its belief that Scripture will be understandable and inoffensive to human reason. This isn't even what Scripture confesses about itself. St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Yeah, this is just not the root problem at all. So this is part of the traditional characterization of all non-Trinitarian Christians as rationalists. Unitarian Christians just don't have any kind of methodology in common, other than a willingness to reform more than mainstream Protestantism has reformed. That's the only thing that we have in common. And I think you also could generally say that we're not too impressed with traditional mystery appeals. We're less impressed than most Trinitarians would be. And the reason for that is that a mystery in the New Testament is something which was formerly unknown, but which now has been revealed by God and which is known. So the New Testament just gives no encouragement to the traditional practice of crying mystery and then ending the conversation whenever we find ourselves in a theological contradiction or difficulty. That is true. Are there mysteries in the world? 
Maybe some Unitarians would say no, but some would say yes. They would say consciousness is a mystery. Divine omniscience is a mystery. Divine omnipresence is a mystery in the sense of being not fully explainable, or some would even say in the sense of implying apparent contradictions. So there is no root methodology that explains why all Unitarians are what they are. That's just a myth. That's something that I assume that Pastor Sullivan would have been taught in seminary. But it's just part of a traditional polemic against non-Trinitarian Christians that goes back to the early modern era. It's not a helpful diagnosis, honestly. Okay, so now Pastor Sullivan is going to venture some arguments against Unitarian Christianity. So let's see how these go. Uh, For all of its claims uh, of reasonableness, Socinianism falls short of being as reasonable as it claims. Uh Uh-oh. For instance, by denying the eternal generation of God the Son, they're denying that God is truly a father. So I think this is really the fourth century speculation that comes from Athanasius that, you know, the son has to be a real son and the father has to be a real father. And to be a real son and real father involves nature sharing, where the father gives his nature to the son. And Athanasius would make analogies to human reproduction as he understood it. Never mind that. How do Unitarian Christians think that the Father is Father? We think it's non-literal. It's a metaphor. God is like a human father in certain respects. He's like a father relative to the human race generally. And he's like a father in a more unique way with his human son, Jesus the Christ. You say, well, aha, then God's not a real father, meaning a nature-sharing father, we would just say, sorry, we don't think Scripture teaches that God is a nature-sharing Father. If you think that we should accept that God is a nature-sharing Father, you'll have to give us an argument for that, not just assume it. Scripturally, God is Father precisely because He has begotten a Son from eternity. Where's the chapter and verse on that, my friend? Who is his eternal word? Who is, as Paul says in uh, Hebrews mm-hmm. 1 3, the brightness of his glory and the exact image of his person? So if the Son isn't a Son from the Father's essence, then he's not truly a Son, nor is God the Father actually a Father. He's not truly a Father then. And that's the Athanasian line of argument that just really doesn't have any scriptural basis as best we can see. You say, well, how could Jesus be the image of God or the brightness of his glory and not be divine? Why would you think that those things require having a divine essence? Another aspect of this is that if God was not father until the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary, then at that point, God underwent change. Well, he would have still been father relative to the human race collectively, right? But okay, we want to focus on that special sense of fatherhood in which he's the father of Jesus. We would say, yeah, I just don't see any problem with saying that this thing happened at a certain point in time. Because prior to Jesus' birth, he's not a father. Then all of a sudden, he's a father. Mm -hmm. You've introduced change into God, who is immutable. So Jesus, I mean, God says this in Malachi 3, 6, for I am the Lord, I do not change. This is a general theological matter. Not all Unitarians have a view about this. But those of us who are educated in philosophical theology, I think most of us would say we think God is in time and that God does change, of course, in non-essential respects. The quoted verse needn't be saying anything more than that God is stable and unchanging in his character and so in his dealings with us. 
on the face of it, it just seems wrong to say that God doesn't ever change in any respect, whatever. You know, when a sinner repents and is forgiven, doesn't God go from not having forgiven that sinner to then having forgiven that sinner? Well, that's a change in God. But it doesn't seem like any kind of bad thing. It seems like a good thing. Divine immutability is part of a package of speculations that recent philosophers and theologians have characterized as, quote, classical theism. Myself, I think classical theism is a hot mess, which bristles with philosophical problems and which doesn't fit with the Bible at all. Of course, many Protestant theologians disagree. On this topic, I would say take a look at the work of philosophical or analytic theologian Ryan Mullins or R.T. Mullins. Just Google Mullins classical theism, and there's a whole world of very interesting arguments there. Generally, a person who doesn't put a lot of stock in post-biblical speculations is, for that reason, not going to be very sympathetic to the claim that God is essentially immutable, that is to say, by his essence, incapable of any sort of change of any kind. Now Pastor Sullivan is going to present us with a clump of arguments that I would characterize as Christological collapse arguments, right? The Bible says that Christ does A, B, and C, and surely he couldn't do those things unless he was fully divine or had a divine essence or nature. Let's see how the arguments go. Another aspect of this is that a Christ who is only human cannot be the brightness of God the Father's glory in the express image of his person in order to fully reveal the Father. It's rather because Jesus, according to his divine nature, is the exact image of the Father that he can say to Philip and all of us in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And in Matthew eleven twenty seven, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. If the Son is only man and not divine, then he can't fully reveal God. Um, He can only reveal God the Father to the extent that God the Father has revealed himself to him, just like any other prophet. If Christ Jesus isn't fully God then, begotten eternally of the Father, he's not his exact image, he's an incomplete image, and therefore not what Paul claims, nor can he fully reveal the Father as Jesus says he does. Okay. So Christ is the brightness of God's glory. He's a true image of God. He fully reveals God. He says all things have been delivered to him. If you see me, you've seen the Father, etc. None of those things he says could be true unless Jesus is fully divine. Surely he must be fully divine if those things I just said are true. And to that I would say, don't call me surely. And those claims you're making are neither clear scriptural teachings, nor are they self-evident. And so, I think they would need to be argued for. These are impossibility claims. The way that you establish an impossibility claim is you show how the claims in question result in a contradiction. And so, therefore, the claims in question just can't be true. They have to be false. Right. So, what you would do, Pastor Sullivan, is say, Jesus is only human, but not also fully divine. And yet, he's the brightness of God's glory, he's his true image, he can truly say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, etc. And then add in some more plausible premises, whatever those are, and then you'll get some contradiction, P and not P. And an argument like that would show that the Unitarian position must be false, 
because you just can't have a non-divine Christ of whom you could say those things. How would an argument like that go? I have no idea. I suspect that our pastor doesn't know how to make that argument either. I take him to just be saying, oh, come on, doesn't he have to be divine? How else would you understand how he could be these things? And our answer would be, we just think he can be those things and be a man. What's the problem, really? What about his claim that no one could fully reveal God unless they were God? Well, why on earth would you accept that? Again, it's neither self-evident nor is it taught anywhere in Scripture. There is no such claim about what's required for adequately or fully revealing God in Scripture. How would you argue for it? I don't know, but it would need to be argued for. And it's not the sort of claim that's going to impress Protestants who want to base our theology and our Christology on clear scriptural teachings. Would Jesus just be like any other prophet if he's not divine? No, that doesn't follow. I mean, Jesus was understood to be a prophet. He's called that a few times in the New Testament. But the main New Testament claim about him is that he is God's Christ or Messiah, which is something much greater than any previous prophet. And so the prophet term just kind of drops out because he seems to just outclass all the other messengers and agents of God. Look in the gospel according to John, Jesus says that he got his message from God. If you were fully divine, you wouldn't need to get your message from God because you'd be essentially all-knowing. Our view seems to better fit that than theirs, but that's true across the board. By denying the unity of essence, then, this causes more problems in reading the New Testament, making it more difficult to understand. It's because of the unity of essence between the Father and the Son that the Son does divine works and has salvation uh, attributed to him with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Wow. So where does the New Testament say that it's because Jesus has the divine essence or nature that he can do miracles? That's right, nowhere. It does say, though, that God empowered him by his Spirit, and that God did miracles through him, Acts chapter 2, and that it's the Father in me who does the works, Jesus says in the fourth gospel. This is actually an unusual argument. A lot of today's Trinitarians will say, okay, yeah, Jesus was fully divine everything, but despite his being fully divine, he just decided not to use those divine powers, and he had to operate by the power of God's Spirit in him, just as Christians do today. This argument that Jesus doing miracles, that that proves that he was divine, it's actually an argument that a lot of Trinitarians today would not make, and I think they should not make it, because the New Testament explanation for his miraculous powers is what I said. It's that God empowered him and God was working through him and cooperating with him. Something God can do with a man. And speaking of men, the present sort of argument would prove too much. If you have to have a divine essence or nature to do miracles, then I guess we've just discovered some proofs that Moses had a divine nature, that Elijah had a divine nature, and that Peter had a divine nature. If you say, no, well, come on, get real. Obviously, God empowered them to be able to do those things. Right. And just as obviously in the case of Jesus, about whom it is said that God gave him his spirit without measure. For instance, John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Amen to that. If the Father is the only true God, then, well, no one else is. That's what only means. Here's Pastor Sullivan's answer. 
Socinians claim that Jesus is excluding himself from the Godhead. Only, uh, yeah. Since he calls the Father the only true God. Mm-hmm. Yet, Johann Gerhard points out that if eternal life is said to consist of the knowledge of someone in the same and equal manner in which it also consists of a knowledge of the Father, then that someone is the true God with the Father. If there is one spiritual and divine knowledge of them, then one nature belongs to them. Well, Johann Gerhard is full of beans. Again, notice the pattern. Is what he just said a clear scriptural teaching? No, it's not. Is it something which is self-evident, like 2 plus 2 is 4? In which case, one would not need to argue for it, but only just point out that it's just obviously true? No, it's not like that at all. There doesn't seem to be anything impossible about eternal life to consist in knowing God and his human son. So there is a pattern here, and here there is a methodological difference between us, between seminary-educated Trinitarians and Unitarian Christians. The seminary-educated Trinitarian seems to just accept plausible ideas because they're passed on by somebody in the tradition, because a biblical scholar said it, or a church father said it, or their seminary professor said it. I mean, it strikes them as plausible, so isn't that good enough? Well, there are a lot of plausible speculations out in the wild. I don't think that is good enough. In fact, it seems like kind of a hazardous thing for a Protestant to do. So whenever we see these traditional nuggets of wisdom, which are neither clearly taught in Scripture, nor are they self-evident, we say, why should we believe that? Please give me an argument or some kind of evidence for the truth of that claim that you've just made. And typically we don't get that. When the Trinity's podcast returns, are Unitarian Christians recommending the sin of idolatry? It is because of the unity of essence that Christ is fully divine, and therefore we worship Christ, just as believers worshiped Christ in the New Testament. When Socinians, however, direct people to worship a Christ who is a creature that is not divine, they're inviting people to idolatry, since we are to worship God alone according to the scriptures then. Note the assumption that it's wrong to worship anyone unless that someone has the divine nature. This is something which is not clearly taught in Scripture, neither is it clearly implied or presupposed. The man Jesus himself seems to be the counterexample to it. He's taught to be a man, and as a man, he's not going to have all the divine qualities, and yet he's supposed to be worshipped or religiously honored, or whatever you want to call what's happening in Philippians 2 and Revelation 5. Is this to recommend the sin of idolatry? No, because this is not the definition of idolatry, worshiping a creature. What is the definition of idolatry? I think you could use the term neutrally just as a description of a type of religious practice, 
synonymous with image worship, or you could be talking about like idolatry, the sin. In the first sense, idolatry or image honoring is just relating to something as if it were an important self, basically. So typically, a statue, a painting, an abstract representation, like you have the Hindu idol for Shiva. In rare instances, you can even have people worshiping humans when the person is regarded as uh, inhabited by a god. That's what idolatry is. It's in practically all of the religions of the world, excepting Protestant Christianity and Judaism. What's idolatry in the sense of a sin? Well, I think it's just that first sort of thing, which is against the expressed will of God. So the Law of Moses forbids that sort of thing. There was a time in the history of the Hebrews where they did engage in certain types of image honoring. But when God forbade all that sort of thing, now we're talking about idolatry, the sin, honoring some object as if it were God or an important person in violation of the will of God. Well, honoring Christ isn't that because God has raised him to his right hand. And if you say, how on earth could God exalt a mere man to his right hand? We would say, why would you think that's impossible? Why couldn't an all-knowing and all-powerful being exalt a special man to his right hand so that people would honor him to the glory of God the Father? That doesn't seem impossible to us. In fact, it just seems to be right on the surface of the New Testament. Jesus says in John 8 that he's a man who told you the truth that he heard from God, and eventually, as the story goes, he gets exalted. And that exaltation entails that we have to give him a religious sort of honor or worship, whatever you want to call it. Should we worship God alone? Well, that was the tradition under the older deal. It's in the Law of Moses. Jesus quotes that verse to Satan when he's tempted. But have you read Revelation 5? Because there are two objects of worship or honor in Revelation 5. There's God on the throne, who was introduced in chapter 4, and then there's the Lamb who was slain, who clearly is representing Jesus in this vision. And the people sing praises to both of them. Again, not reasonable and contrary to the scriptures. Hmm. So, Sassanians, past so. and present, they simply refuse to acknowledge what the Jews themselves, even in their unbelief, recognized in John 5.18, that by calling God his Father, Jesus made himself equal with God. Well, this is to misunderstand John chapter 5. Just in general, interpreters have taught us that you don't want to take the Jews in the fourth gospel as propounding a correct Christology or a correct understanding of who Jesus is and what he teaches. They're kind of clownish and spiritually blind figures, in fact, what? To be born again, I'm going to have to go back into my mother? Contemporary commenters call this the misunderstanding motif in John. Biblical Unitarian scholar Dr. Dustin Smith has done an excellent series of podcasts for his Biblical Unitarian podcast on this exact theme in the Gospel of John. I'll put a link to some of those episodes at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Back to John 5. So in the first part of the chapter, Jesus heals somebody, and in verse 15 it says, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, 
my father is still working and I also am working, end quote. <laughs> Notice how he distinguishes between himself and God there. It continues, for this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal to God. Now, is that John's view that Jesus is claiming to be equal to God? Jesus in the book literally says that the father is greater than he is. And Jesus in the book as portrayed as getting his message and his authority and his power, his commission from God. Let's keep reading to the next verse. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and he will show him greater works than these, so that you will be astonished. Now, if equality with God means having the divine essence, being all-powerful and all-knowing, you know, not needing to be led by anybody else, then no, it doesn't sound like Jesus is equal to God in that sense. Here I am, God himself, and as such, I only do what this other one does. I let this other one lead me. I need this other one to show me what to do. No, that's not a claim of equal divinity. Neither is there a claim anywhere in the rest of this book. But that's another big conversation, because there are a number of difficult-to-interpret passages in this book, and also a number of passages which in themselves aren't unclear, but which have been made difficult to interpret by overlaying Trinitarian interests and speculations on top of them. Okay, I think Pastor Sullivan is kind of starting to wrap up here. Denying the Trinity, they have to deny the Incarnation, and by denying both, unfortunately and sadly, they place themselves outside of the Christian faith. Here again, where do we get our justification for the view that no one is a Christian unless they accept small-c Catholic speculations deriving from the 4th and later centuries about the Trinity and Incarnation? Answer, we get that from post-biblical small-c Catholic traditions. We don't get it from the Bible. We would point to Acts chapter 2 and indeed to every presentation of the gospel in the book of Acts, in which no mention is made of the triune God, and no mention is made of the deity of Christ, nor are such things in any way implied or presupposed. And yet, the gospel goes forward. People are saved, the number of Christians increases, the movement spreads and grows. We accept the gospel as preached in Acts 2, and as I said, in the rest of Acts, Why isn't that good enough? As John Locke pointed out quite a while ago now, the real demand that's placed on people in the New Testament to believe in order to be part of the community is to believe that Jesus is God's Christ, with all that entails. And it doesn't seem to entail full divinity, by the way. If it did, you wouldn't have so many Christians running around in the first four centuries who believed that Jesus was the Christ and who didn't believe in his full divinity or deity. People like Justin, Tertullian, Origen, Novation, Eusebius the church historian. Not to mention the many Christians who historians now refer to as dynamic monarchians. Their views about God and Jesus seem to have been the same as today's biblical Unitarians. And by the way, later in this year, Theophilus Press is going to publish a really game-changing scholarly monograph on those ancient dynamic monarchians. 
And it makes the case that it's plausible that their Christology was actually the earliest one. Okay, my friends, we've reached the end now. I hope this helps you as you are coming in or out of non-denominationalism uh, into something with a bit more meat on it. So send your questions to ATP, holycross at gmail.com, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> more meat on it. Yes, I think I understand his meaning there. His meaning is a more small C Catholic view, which includes more of small C Catholic traditions than Bible oriented evangelicalism does. Thank you, Pastor Sullivan, for taking this question. Thank you for giving it your best shot. Thank you for attempting to state things fairly and without the hatred that often goes into these discussions. You seem like a godly and articulate and learned pastor, and I pray that God blesses you in your ministry. To the questioner, I would say definitely do check out all your options. Yes, including the more traditional or more small-c Catholic ones. But also, why not include the more radical Protestants that we call Unitarian Christians? Just be aware that, as always, the best way to understand a group is to go to their own sources. Sometimes you won't get the most accurate picture of a controversial group by only listening to what their opponents say. And I would urge that what's most important is to get the New Testament right. So I would put your focus on that. And may God bless and guide you in your search for a spiritual home. This week's thinking music has been the track I Dunno by Grapes. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can download or listen to that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.